Ventura. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Man, does that, uh, uh, yes, exactly. Just listen to that. Merry Christmas. Man, come on. That's it. Um, let me just begin by saying thank you um, to the multitude of people who over the past week have reached out to my family and I. Uh, at this time last week, we were finding out that my 17-year-old had pneumonia and uh, uh, we didn't know what it was going to look like. He was pretty sick. And I had people all over the place coming up and asking me how he was doing, uh, what they could do, how they could pray. And I'm so glad to say he's doing phenomenally well. He's healed up virtually everything but this nagging cough, which he's probably going to have for a while. It's just part of the beast of pneumonia. But um, we're, I'm just grateful. Grateful for the way that you've loved us. Secondly... Over the past 20 years, this church has loved and blessed my life in countless ways. I've been the recipient of many cards, meals, water heaters, guitars. But yesterday, one of you, maybe many of you, gave me a gift that I felt like the whole church needed to see. So, wa watch this. So I walk in today to finish preparing my sermon for tomorrow, and my door is wrapped in Christmas wrapping paper. The message, it's the happiest time of the year. Big star. I laugh. Pretty, pretty funny, out loud. I open my door. They have wrapped all my pictures. My lamp, I couldn't even turn on the lamp because I couldn't get to the switch. My, my pens, my pens are wrapped. My, my, Everything's wrapped. My chair is wrapped. I can't even sit down. <laughs> oh my gosh. I couldn't listen to music because my speakers were wrapped. So here's my biggest dilemma. The suspect pool at this church is huge. I started trying to jot down names of people I think who would do this. And the simple truth is, it could have been any of you. So, if at the end of the service, you feel the need for a time of confession, <laughs> I will be available. Uh, but today... We are continuing our Advent series, The Songs of Christmas, Volume 2. And it will come as no surprise to any of you that I fully endorsed and supported the idea of this series. But it's not just because I have an unusually high affection for Christmas music. 
Carson insightfully pointed out last week, as time passes, the season of Christmas continues its metamorphosis from a religious holiday into a secular one. But there is something about the Christian hymns of Christmas that is so transcendent and timeless that they stand like immovable bulwarks against the crashing waves of secularism. And throughout the corridors of our malls and over the secular radio airwaves, you'll hear, Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. Like we sung last week. Or joy to the world or any other number of glorious praises to Christ. And the gospel is announced once more to our world for anyone who has ears to hear it. The intent of this series was to take some of the more familiar gospel-saturated carols of Christmas and allow their lyrics to act as fallible compasses to point us to the infallible compass of God's word that always points us to Christ. However, today... We're going to follow a song less familiar. Not because the lyrics are not ancient and at one point of popular use, but because they fell out of common use and our songwriters found them and sought to set them to a contemporary and singable melody. It was a song we just sang a moment ago entitled The Promised Savior. The lyrics were written by a lawyer turned poet named Aurelius Clemens Prudentius in about 400 AD. He was trained as a lawyer and rose to high office, serving as a powerful judge in Rome. He rose through the ranks of the state and finished his civil career as a court official for the Christian emperor Theodosius. And at the age of 57, at the height of his power and prestige, Prudentius had a midlife crisis. Being weary of civic life and considering his life thus far to have been a waste, this successful lawyer, judge, and civil servant retired to write hymns and poetry. And for the last decade of his life, before his death in 413, Prudentius wrote some of the most beautiful hymns of his day. The most famous of his poems was a 38-verse sonnet whose title we would translate as A Hymn for All Hours. I don't know if they had 38 hours back then, but the numbers didn't quite add up for me. But that's what it was called, A Hymn for All Hours. And back in August of 2017, Kenny Hilliard, many of you guys remember the Hilliards, Kenny and Claire, they've moved to Nashville now. Kenny sends me an email with a, curate, with a curated selection of some of the verses from this sonnet, with an idea to set them to music and give the church a new Christmas hymn to sing. And after reading through the poem, I agreed with him. And we began work, and what was birthed is the song that we all just sang. Now when artists create a new piece of art, There's often intentionality given 
that is so subtle and nuanced that observers don't even realize it's there. This is also true of the craft of songwriting. All Christian song, all Christmas songs share the common Christmas themes within them. But each one seeks to emphasize or highlight particular beautiful aspects of the story. Away in a Manger was written as a lullaby that would lend itself to being sung to children and by children. Charles Wesley, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, said that his goal in writing music was to teach the poor and illiterate sound doctrine. And when you read his lyrics, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Our goal in writing The Promised Savior was to connect the Christmas story within the larger story. Not simply to retell the narrative of Christ's birth, but to set it in the context of the larger narrative that God is writing. Not to answer the question of how Christ came, but to answer the question, why did Christ come? And here's what I hope that we glean from our study of the scriptures today and what I pray the promised Savior helps you know and believe. Jesus was born to retrieve the curse, restore mankind and all creation, and receive ultimate glory. And the first verse of the song begins like this. Oh, how blessed that wondrous birthday when the maid the curse retrieved brought to birth mankind's salvation by the Holy Ghost conceived. The sacred Son, Redeemer of the world, her arms received. He assumed this mortal body, frail and feeble, doomed to die. That the race from dust created might not perish in the night which the law of God condemned us all in the depths of hell to lie. Well, everything about the opening verses sound like other Christmas hymns. Christmas is Jesus' birthday. Jesus is man's salvation. He was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Ghost. He's the redeemer of the world. Mary's helping retrieve the curse. Wait, what? Curse? I don't remember there being witches or cauldrons in the Christmas story. What's, what's this business about a curse? Well, we're all familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are created by God, perfect and sinless, and are commanded by God to cultivate and keep this beautiful garden as their home and to multiply and fill the earth with children who would be worshipers of God, who would live in perfect harmony and communion with Him. But God did not force His love and devotion on them. 
Instead, he gave them the choice of whether they would live under his authority and headship or if they would choose to live as their own sources of authority, as gods unto themselves. And so he placed a tree in the garden from which if they ate of the fruit of this tree, they were declaring their own independence and rebellion from the God who had made them. And we all know what happened. Eve ate first and then Adam. And through their disobedience, Adam and Eve invoked God's curse. And so death entered our world. And its effects have been felt by everyone, everywhere, throughout every generation, such that today it's normal for us. It's a normal part of our existence. We have lived our entire lives under the effects of this curse. Author John Kessler writes, death is not a natural stage in the cycle of human development. Death is a curse. The presence of death is an intrusion. It is natural only to the extent that nature itself suffers from the stroke that fell upon Adam as a consequence of his sin. So what does this have to do with Christmas? What's the correlation between Adam's curse and Christ's birth? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and let me pray for us as we sit under the inerrant, infallible, beautiful word of God this morning. Christ, show us mercy. These beautiful truths are difficult for our modern, western, individualistic minds to comprehend. But you've asked us to walk by faith and not by sight. So help us, allow your word to shape our worldview and make us into a people for your own glory and renown. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, up to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has had one overarching theme that he's been unpacking. We call it the doctrine of justification by faith. It means that believers are declared to have a right standing with God, not on the basis of our inherent righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we receive by faith alone. And in Romans 5, Paul is driving this argument to a climax by comparing Adam, the father of all humanity, with Jesus, the father of a new humanity. Look with me at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam's sin, death, there's the curse, reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now this is difficult for our modern individualistic ears to comprehend. 
But the first thing that we must all understand is that our biggest problem, our greatest issue, is not just that each of us have personally sinned. We are not sinners only because we have committed sin. Our problem is the connection that we all share with Adam and his sin and therefore his curse. Look at how many times Paul makes this connection in chapter 5, verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's sin and his curse have been inherited by us, his children. This is why the Bible makes statements like, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Or why Paul, just a couple of chapters earlier, said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The universal scope of Adam's sin and the subsequent curse is inescapable. But what if God were to give us a new Adam, a new father of a new humanity that would be freed from the curse brought by the first Adam? And this is Paul's main point in comparing and contrasting Adam with Jesus. It's not that Jesus accomplished what Adam could not, but that his life's offering was far superior, so much so that it reversed the curse. He retrieved it from Adam's hands, and he became a curse for us. Galatians 3 tells us, and just as Adam's unrighteousness was imputed to us through birth, Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to us through faith. So much so that Paul would say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But Jesus is not just a better Adam as the father of a redeemed humanity. He's also a better Moses as the fulfillment of God's law. The last stanza of our opening verse declares, he assumed this mortal body, frail and feeble, doomed to die, that the race from dust created might not perish in the night, which the law of God 
condemned us all in the depths of hell to lie. One of the primary purposes of God's law, that is the first five books of the New Testament, also known as the Torah, was to show us what sin is. In Romans chapter 7, Paul defends the law as being good by saying, how would I have known what covetousness was if the law had not shown me? And in Galatians, the law is described as a tutor or a teacher that is helping direct us to our need for Jesus. However, God's law is a little bit like a double-edged sword. Because even as it makes us aware of what sin is, we realize we're sinners. We are participants in it. And so even as it educates you, it condemns you. For the wages of sin is the curse. But here we get a more vivid and defined image of what we mean by death. When a person dies, we're tempted to think that they just cease to exist because we cannot see them. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. In Luke 16, he described a great chasm over which none may cross from there to us. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one entering into his presence, the other banished to eternal fire. In Mark 9, Mark 13, Matthew 10, Jesus warns us that the curse of death is not annihilationism, but the eternal depths of hell, a place of torment, of gnashing of teeth, of grief that Jesus says lasts forever. And in our day and age, it is so archaic and it's so old-fashioned to think that the love of God would send people to a place like that. So we don't talk about it much. We don't hear it in the lyrics of songs that we sing much. But it's in this song. And here's why. The reality of hell does not diminish or belittle the love of God. It magnifies the love of God. God did not turn his back on us. We turned our back on God. Adam and Eve chose to eat of that fruit and be gods unto themselves. And please don't hear me blaming it all on Adam and Eve. Because if any of us were to be completely honest and open with each other, we have all chosen our own way in defiance of our creator. Even though we know on this side of the cross, we know the full extent of his love for us in the face of his only begotten son whom he gave for us. We are as selfish and as wretched and as idolatrous as Adam and Eve ever were. 
We deserve to be condemned to the depths of hell. But lo, he comes, the promised Savior. Let the world his praises cry to retrieve the curse. Redeem us, restore us, give us beauty for our ashes, give us life instead of death. This is why he came. Now there's a beautiful middle verse in this song that serves as a doxological call for all creation, men and angels, to let their joyous anthems ring Every tongue, every nation, his chorus raise in response to this glorious news that Jesus has come to save us. And we don't have time this morning to delve into those scriptures reflected in that verse. But suffice it to say, there is no more appropriate response to the truths that we've just unpacked than a song of praise and a life of worship. So, So if the first half of the song answers the question, why did Jesus come? He came to retrieve the curse and to rescue us from hell. The second half of the song answers the question, how did he accomplish this? Here are the lyrics. Ah, how wondrous was the fountain flowing from his pierced side. When the blood and water mingled in a strange and sacred tide. Water sign of cleansing divine and blood, the martyr's pride. In that hour the ancient serpent saw the holy victim slain. Saw and shed his hated venom. All his malice spent in vain. See the hissing neck is broken. We have to hold this part because it's the awesome part. As he writhes in sullen pain. We'll get there. This verse begins very similarly to the opening verse of the song with the phrase, how wondrous. And the intention of us putting that there was to serve as kind of a literary device similar to like an inclusio, which tells the singer there's an additional wondrous truth for us to ponder here. We've just pondered the wondrous truth of Christ's birth. Now there's this wondrous, miraculous truth of his death. In his gospel, John gives us the details of the Roman soldiers piercing Jesus' side to confirm his death and seeing blood and water spilled out. And poets and hymn writers have often mused on these graphic details and created illustrative metaphors from these descriptions. There is a fountain filled with blood 
going up to the mountain of mercy, to that crimson perpetual tide. And the irony within the imagery is powerful. For it is through this grotesque, messy execution that we are made clean. This is how the curse is reversed. Jesus did not just have to come to be born unto us. He has to die for us. 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God send his son? He was sent to be a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Substitutionary, meaning that he took our place and suffered the punishment that we deserved. Not only suffering one of the most agonizing, torturous kinds of physical death that man has ever concocted by nailing a man to pieces of wood to hang and suffocate but also receiving God's righteous, just wrath poured out towards sin. Atoning, meaning that the value and worth of his life was enough to not only meet the law's demands, but to satisfy the righteousness and the holiness of our God. He was And he is to this day the only perfect man without blemish or spot. His life is the only one in existence that could have atoned for ours. Sacrifice. Sacrifice meaning that there was no shortcut or easy option to pardon us from our sin. It could not be done with a verbal pardon or a prick of his finger to offer a portion of his life's blood. He had to give it all of his own free will, the ultimate act of love. And when Christ bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and said, it is finished, and was laid in a tomb For three days, the joy of heaven's song must have grown eerily silent, transferred into the bowels of hell. Aurelius, the man who wrote the lyrics for our song, he must have pondered these ideas when he penned my favorite lyric in the song. In that hour, the ancient serpent saw the holy victim slain, saw and shed his hated venom, but all of his malice was spent in vain. See, the hissing neck is broken as it writhes in sullen pain. These lyrics 
Harken back to the Garden of Eden once again. You'll remember that the first curse given by God was to the serpent, a physical manifestation of Satan who had deceived Adam and Eve into disobeying God. And within the curse laid a prophecy filled with enigma and wonder. Listen to Genesis chapter 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There would be animosity and division between one of Eve's future children and Satan such that they would be at war with one another. Even as Satan rejoiced in the death of Christ, shedding his hate-filled venom, thinking he had won, in that very moment, the heel of Eve's offspring was breaking the neck and power of Satan. It is the greatest plot twist of all time. Better than finding out that Malcolm had been a ghost the whole time in the sixth sense. Better than finding out King Candy was actually the arch villain Turbo at the end of Wreck-It Ralph. Better than Luke, I am your father. This kills all those. Why? Because this was real. This really happened. It's not a fictional story. It happened in a real city, the real city of Jerusalem, orchestrated by real provincial rulers, Herod and Pilate. This really happened. And on the third day, a real tomb was empty. One that you can go visit today in Jerusalem and see with your own eyes. And so the last chorus of our song, it takes an unexpected plot twist turn as well. And we praise him as the conquering savior. Lo, he comes, the conquering savior. Let the world his praises cry. Lo, he comes, the conquering Savior. Let God's people gather nigh. The final verse of our song summarizes Christ's work and it emphasizes its completion. I mentioned to you earlier that every artist has subtle and nuanced intentions behind their works that are often missed. One of the more subtle aspects of this song is that it's not written in your typical major scale. Instead, we wrote it in an irregular minor scale. And for those of you who are musically educated, it's a mix between Aeolian mode and Lydian mode. 
which is just really helpful, I know, for those of you who, who aren't. But your typical scale, your typical major scale is do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, right? You get eight notes. You get eight notes in a, in a scale to work with. And in this song, we've taken the third, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh notes of that scale, and we flatted them all. That gives the song its melancholy, eerie, and war chant-like qualities. But this last verse, it speaks of Christ's work being finished, its completion. And we wanted to introduce a musical element that signaled the resolve to all of this tension. We wrote it in, that mo- in those modes because there's tension throughout this whole story. We are being redeemed, but at what cost? But here at the end, the last verse speaks of Christ sitting on his throne, his work being complete. And so uh, the very, we changed the very last chord. The last verse goes like this. Then mankind to life restoring, death downtrodden neath his feet. Lo, the victim mounts triumphant to the Father's judgment seat, bringing back to heaven his glory, his passion made complete. We introduced what's called a Picardy third. We took the minor third note within the chord and we raised it a half set. What that does is it makes that last chord major. A major chord is the most pleasant sounding chord that our ears hear. To us, a major chord says everything's right, everything's complete, everything's in place. That's the way it's supposed to sound. And isn't that what we all want? Don't we want peace and completion, wholeness, comfort, and joy? Well, I bring you glad tidings then of great news that is for all people because the baby born in that manger is the savior of the world who has come to break the curse redeem your life and offer to you eternal peace and joy and he has done it all the work is complete there's only one thing that you must do And we saw it in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. God does not force his love 
upon you. He simply offers it to you as a gift that you must receive by faith. And when you do, Jesus Christ, the Father of the new humanity, through the Holy Spirit, makes you a new creation. If you would like to place your faith in Christ, we would love nothing more than to help you do that, to know what it is to walk in newness of life. Or if you've placed your faith in Christ, but you've been walking in the dead skin of the old man, Christ's offer to you is the same. It is always come. Let us reason together. Though your skin, sins are like scarlet, that crimson perpetual tide washes us white as snow. So we're going to sing this song one more time. We're going to glory in these truths together one more time. And as we do, I'm going to be down front. I would love nothing more than to pray with you and to, to uh, offer you any help I can in following Jesus. Some of our other pastors and leaders will also be available. But let's stand and let's sing these glorious truths together.